And hello and welcome to this week's edition of Novak Now here on the Nachum Siegel Network. I'm Jake Novak. And I want to remind everyone that the archives for almost two years worth now, maybe even more than two years worth now, of Novak Now programs here on the Nachum Siegel Network have always been available on the archive page on the Nachum Siegel homepage. I will put the link for those archives. So if you miss any program over these last couple of years or you want to listen to something again, if you want to catch me in a mistake, whatever you want to do, you can find it there. My Twitter feed is where you find all the things that I, t- that I talk about on a sometimes a minute-by-minute basis, but certainly on a daily basis, hourly basis. And my Twitter feed is at JakeJakeNY, two Jakes. At JakeJakeNY is where you can find all that. And of course, I will be featuring uh, uh, today and in the coming days that archive link so that you can find uh, this show uh, from the past. And if you're listening to it now and you want a friend to listen to it or someone else, you can, you can forward that archive link and they'll be able to listen to it as well. Uh, I want to talk about three major topics today. They're all kind of related. The first being, as this Black Lives Matter protest situation continues to move across the country, although I'm happy to say the violent aspect of those who seem to be hijacking these protests and using them as an excuse to riot and, and to loot and things like that, that seems to be on the wane. But the question is, what is the Jewish, what should be the Jewish response to Black Lives Matter? What should be the Jewish response to these issues of police brutality, the question of, of racism's role in America and things like that? I want to talk about another thing that sadly is related to this, which is, which is a question. Why are so many radical movements, on the left and the right, but if you are a radical revolutionary movement that is not a Jewish movement, inherently a Jewish movement, why is anti-Semitism so very often, if not all the time, a, an aspect of that revolutionary movement? Why is anti-Semitism so much something that revolutionary movements seem to turn to, usually right off, right, off, right off the bat? Why is that? And the third thing I'm going to talk about is the story of a person that, a Jewish, a Jewish person who had a tremendous impact in the history of the modern world, who most Jews and most people probably never heard of. His name was Yaakov Yurovsky, and I'm going to tell you his story, and I hope I'll be able to convince you of the fact that his personal story is really, really educational for us right now, not only as Jews, but as Americans and as people who understand history. You've got to know the story of Yaakov Yurovsky, and um, it's, really, it's, it's, it's an amazing, amazing story that most, most people haven't heard. Even most of my friends who are very, very educated Jews have never heard of him. So that will be... The, the last topic I touch on. Again, all these topics are related. Folks, let's talk first about the Black Lives Matter movement. I'm not talking about people who believe that Black Lives Matter. I think we, I think we all believe that. The idea that somebody's life doesn't matter, uh, only the most evil people in the world would say that, and that would be people who don't, don't think that certain people are actually fully human. And we know that that is a big part of far radical racist movements. You know, the Nazis had to create an ideology that said that Jews really weren't people. They were, we, were, we, were con- we were compared to insects. We were compared to sort of animals. Um, clearly, there are people in the KKK and far-right far, far right, white supremacist groups who, who refer to black people as not as people, not as, not, not as humans. And that, of course, we reject across the board. In fact, even evil people are still human beings. The human rights, basic human rights, are never forfeited 
you know, and if, if, if you think, oh, well, what about when we execute somebody? Well, when somebody is executed, you, if you do it rightfully, if you do it in, in, in the context of human rights, then that person is either tried or found guilty, or in the case of someone who is killed while they're trying to attack you, that person only is killed because they're trying to kill you. In other words, sir, your human right to not be attacked supersedes anyone's human right, supposed right, non-right, basically, to attack you. So in other words, we don't dehumanize people, literally. We do not do that. But the Black Lives Matter movement, specifically the movement, I'm not talking about the, 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 what, what the title means to some people, has had a history well before this killing, the killing of George Floyd in Minneapolis last month that spurred this, this movement now for, for the protesting and sadly for the riots and the looting as well. Well before the, that incident in Minneapolis, well before the police killing of George Floyd, Black Lives Matter had voices within its organization and people associated with it who were infamous for making anti-Semitic and what I would call completely out of context and unnecessary anti-Israel comments, which made it very difficult for any self-respecting Jewish person and certainly any Zionist or Israel-supporting Jewish person or any Zionist or Israel-supporting person, whether they're Jewish or not, to align themselves in any way with Black Lives Matter. I believe in, <laughs> of course I believe that Black Lives Matter. Of course, I want, of course I oppose police brutality, but I will not allow any Black Lives Matter insignias or official materials or anything else like that to be displayed in my home or outside my home, like a lot of, sadly, I think a lot of other Jewish people do. Not understanding or maybe not caring that the Black Lives Matter movement, that official movement, you know, th- think of the imaginary trademark over Black Lives Matter it, it, for that f- official group. There's just too much anti-Semitism involved with it. There's just too much anti-Israel involved with it. So where does that leave Jews? If you can't march with the Black Lives Matter signs, if you can't march with the official Black Lives Matter groups, what do you do? What do you do? And let me just add a couple of things that have happened just in the last few days to, to add to, the, to the, the problem here. This isn't something we can sweep away as an old thing. You have somebody like Mark Lamont Hill, professor at Penn, who is demanding on Twitter that black, these Black Lives Matter protests about George Floyd also include some very strong anti-Israel rhetoric. He wants people to protest across the country who are going to the George Floyd protests to also protest against what he calls Israel's victimization of the Palestinian people, which is an oversimplification. It's, it's, a, it's a slander on Israel. It's a slander on Jews. And, but he wants to connect that, and he's not the only one. Again, Black Lives Matter has had people involved with it for years who have tried to associate these two, these two things. I mean, think about that. They are trying to equate Jews in Israel with police officers who kneel on someone's neck for nine, ten minutes and kill them. This is... It's almost like an inherent need. It's like they need to do it. Second, you had a Black Lives Matter leader in New York City calling for the burning down of the Diamond District last week. Now, why did he choose the Diamond District district as opposed to, oh, I don't know, Times Square, Broadway? I mean, it was, he did not say the word Jews, and I'm going to give him the benefit, I'm not going to give him the benefit of the doubt on that, but I'm just trying to say this for factual reasons. But the Diamond District, which is, almost completely dominated by very, very orthodox and visible Jews, Jews who are not, you know, Jews who you see them have beards and yarmulkes and are clearly Jewish people. That was the, the part of the city that he wanted to burn down. 
And this was a black, one of the Black Lives Matter leaders. And he was uh, thankfully arrested for making you know, a terroristic threat. And third, you had Ice Cube, the rapper and actor Ice Cube, tweeting over the weekend a picture of Jewish-looking men, characteristically, you know, you know stereotypically Jewish-looking men, playing a, a, like a board game that looked like Monopoly, on, and the board is on the backs of oppressed black people. And his message was, you know, we got to flip over the board and take and, and get these people from to stop controlling the world. It was a real anti-Semitic type caricature. These are just three things that just happened over the last few days. So again, the question is, you, you know, even if you're not necessarily a, a Jew who who considers himself a liberal or someone who is an opponent of established police forces or things like that, my question to you is, how can you possibly march with? a Black Lives Matter sign, you know, again, one of their trademark signs. I'm not talking about the idea of Black Lives Matter, which no one should oppose, but I'm talking about that official organization. I don't see how any self-respecting or intelligent Jewish person can be allied with them, because you can't. This is a group that, like so many other revolutionary groups in the past, or progressive groups, whatever you want to call them, because it's not just progressive, it's far right, far left, or any major revolutionary group, even if, they are, even if their cause appears just in many ways. They have embraced a certain percentage of their leadership, a certain percentage of their membership, which is far too, anything more than 0% is, is, is too much, but this seems to be a very significant percentage, have embraced anti-Semitic messaging, anti-Israel slander, and you, just, you can't be a part of that as a Jew. You just cannot. Now, for example, in my house... My, my teenage daughter, who's very inspired by the, the, the response to the George Floyd killing, wants to have some kind of a sign. And I told her we can't have any Black Lives Matter insignias or anything that's officially organized, connected to the group. But if you want to put up a sign that says end police brutality, that's a great idea. Make it yourself. And she was very happy with that. And you know what? My advice to my daughter is my advice to the Jewish people in this country as a whole. The issues of respecting life whether it's white or black. Because in my opinion, police get involved in, in too many killings of unarmed and, and maybe even innocent people every year. I think that most police are, are doing an excellent job. I don't want to look, the, look a gift horse in the mouth because I understand that the, the very often the, a police officer's job is violent and it's going to have to be violent, unfortunately. And that most of the time when deadly force is used by a cop, it, it's to protect their lives and ours. But that doesn't change the fact that there are bad apple cops out there I think that they're protected way too much by police unions. I understand why police officers and, and, and other groups believe that they need unions to protect them, considering the way that they can be attacked at times. But I do think that they've gone too far in protecting certain rogue police officers. From what we understand, Derek Chauvin, the police officer who killed George Floyd, may have been one of those cops. Now, we'll find out when this goes to trial. None of this is completely proven. But it would not shock me if... Derek Chau- if the reports that we've seen that Officer Derek Chauvin had a lot of complaints against him and it became difficult to discipline and or fire him because of police union procedures, that wouldn't surprise me. And I think that's something worth protesting against. I want to do what we can for our police officers and protect them, but they need to be able to meet us halfway as civilians and say, when we do have a rogue cop, we're not going to, we're not going to make sure that it takes the longest amount of time and the most amount of red tape to get rid of him or her. This goes for teachers as well. 
Folks, if you take a look at my writings for CNBC.com over the years, just do Jake Novak, CNBC.com, Municipal Unions, you'll see what I've written about them for years. It's been one of the things that's made me smile, although I wish it didn't have to be because of this. Over the last few days, there's a number of left-wing people who can say that unions are always good, and they support all unions and solidarity forever. They're learning the hard way that unions protect bad people a lot of the time, including some bad police officers. This is true of teachers as well. I mean, to fire a teacher in New York City because of the New York City Teachers Union is is nearly impossible, which is why teachers who sometimes get caught red-handed, dead to rights, abusing children, it takes years to actually fire them. You can get them out of the classroom pretty quickly, but they go to what's known as so-called rubber rooms, just an empty room where they can work on their own private business, watch TV, whatever they want to do, and they still get paid. And taking away their pensions, forget about it. That's never going to happen. So, to me, these are all issues worth protesting against. These are issues worth discussing. But to do it under the rubric of the official Black Lives Matter organization is not acceptable for any Jewish group. And for Jewish organizations, whether they're more religious or more secular-minded Jewish Jewish groups, to be sending out emails saying they support Black Lives Matter without making that you know, making that really clear that the Black Lives Matter organization itself is too involved and has too many connections with anti-Semitism and anti-Israel slander is unconscionable. We can't do that. We cannot do that. We cannot send the message to the world again because Jews did this so often before the, the creation of the state of Israel and we continue to do it in other ways. To send so many messages to organized groups that say it's okay to erase us. It's okay if your organization has a cause that we like and if it also on the side kind of bashes Jews. We'll still support you or at least we won't oppose you. We can no longer send that kind of a message. And of course, one of the biggest worldwide movements in the history of Western civilization that got away with that for so long, a revolutionary movement that had so many Jews involved with it and so many Jews supporting it, even though it became more and more of an anti-Semitic organization, but in my, and, and, and again, I'll, I'll explain why it was an anti-Semitic organization from day one, is communism. Yes, communism was inspired by a Jew named Karl Marx, who wrote Das Kapital. And yes, there were a lot of Jews who were involved in, in the original communist movement in, in what became the Soviet Union. But from day one, and again, I'll, I'll get to this at the end of this week's edition of Novak Now, from day one, Soviet communism was anti-Semitic, and it only got more so as time went on. But I will explain that again. That's, that's where the history of Yaakov Yurovsky comes in. But I want to talk about something else just before that. And that is issue number two. Issue number two, which, is, which will help to explain, I think, where, where Jewish groups can come in when it comes to these protests. Issue number two is, folks, understand something that you need to, to learn about history if you don't already know that, which is far-right and far-left groups in Western civilization for many centuries have almost like clockwork embraced anti-Semitism. Why do they do that? Now, why do they do that? Well, first you have to get into a discussion of what actually causes anti-Semitism. Why is anti-Semitism such an enduring philosophy, such an enduring aspect of hatred throughout the world? For so, and, and why does it always pop up here and there? And I think... It's interesting, there's a lot of scholars who write about this, and they've written epic books, and they get into it in a very scholarly way. But you know, and I will, I will link to this again on my Twitter feed, at Jake Jake Novak, I will link to this video. A 
three, four, five minute video by a very smart man, but a humorist. Basically, he's, he's a comedian. His name is Andrew Claven. He did a video, I think about maybe seven or eight years ago. It might have been even long ago. It might even be 10 years ago now, where he goes into an explanation of why anti-Semitism exists and why it endures, why it keeps popping its head out every once in a while. And he's not the one who invented this idea, but I think he expressed it the best, which is why I'm going to repost that video, and I often refer to it. But one of the things that Clavin talks about is that whether Jews fulfill their own rules of, of, of morality well or not. In other words, we, the Jews, starting with the Torah and starting with our other teachings, we have listed a, a set of morality rules and not just ideas and ideals, because I think Christianity gets into trouble with this. Christianity, which is so much an offshoot of Judaism and has so many things in common with Judaism, one of the things it doesn't have is a set of really written rules. There are some absolutely, there are Christian writings. I'm not saying there aren't Christian writings. Obviously, there's a New Testament and there are church fathers who wrote things. But I'm talking about listed rules like we have in Judaism, you know, as we say in Hebrew halacha, our laws. We, as Jews, you know, especially secular Jews, we struggle. Secular and religious Jews both struggle to keep all of our laws and to live up to our, our, our rules of morality. But what non-Jews, especially non-Jews who seek power, especially, especially non-Jews who seek control over societies, hate about us is that we have these written rules in the first place. You know, Caroline Glick, who is a writer for the Jerusalem Post, and she's been involved in the Israeli government for many years, says this very often. She says, very, every once in a while, a dictator, a king, a brutal leader comes to power. And we Jews in one way or the other say, yes, there is a God. Yes, there is a supreme ruler in the world, and you're not him. Just think about that. And, and why do we say that? We say that because we have the Torah, we have these laws that tell us that no human being is to be worshipped, no human being or human cause is to be given uh, complete carte blanche. So Jews are a threat. Jews are a threat to any organization, any dictator, any leader that wants to take full control over humanity or over a country. The Jews are always going to be a threat because we basically say in our most precious documents that we will never worship a human being or a human movement. We will only worship God. And again, don't get me wrong, folks. I'm not saying that Jews fulfill this goal and live up to this ideal as much as we should. But to our credit, we do have these rules and we do have these ideals and we refuse to erase them. There are, there are very secular Jews who try to do that there are Jews who try to leave, leave the community and say, I reject these rules, I reject the Torah. That's their right to do so. They can do that all they want, but they have not, they've been unsuccessful in erasing what we stand for as Jews. And so that's a big, big threat. And so, any, so, and, and so because as long as evil exists, as long as evil groups try to, uh, to take advantage of others, as long as evil dictator types try to take control of countries, and kill others. Hatred of the Jews is going to be very, very important to them because we will always be a threat. Even in countries where Jews don't really have much of a community. We've seen anti-Semitic literature pop up in places like Japan, in places like China. Now, there are Jews in Japan. There are Jews in China. I'm not saying there are no Jews there, but you understand my argument here. There's not a long history of large Jewish communities in some parts of the world. But even there, 
even in non-Western civilization type countries, anti-Semitism rears its ugly head from time to time. I think there was a, there was a period where the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, which is the slanderous, libelous book that accuses Jews of running the world that, that, that came out in, 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 the, in, in 17th or 18th century Europe, that for, there have been years when that has been a very best-selling book in, in, in the Far East. Hard to believe, I guess, but not hard to believe if you understand again what role the Jews play, at least psychologically, at least philosophically, in as they get in the way of dictators. So when you see organizations, even if they have a lot of good principles that you agree with, like Black Lives Matter, resorting to anti-Semitism or having so many prominent members who are anti-Semitic or saying anti-Semitic things, that's a tip-off. That should be acting like an alarm in your mind. Hey, what the heck's going on here? When an organization decides to use anti-Semitism, whether it's a far-left organization or you, may, you might even think it's a moderate organization or a far-right organization. Again, you might think they're moderate or whatever you want to call them. That is a tip-off. That's a tip-off to their evil. It's a, anti-Semitism is a fantastic litmus test of finding out who's who in your political spectrum. So it's a tip-off, but it's also what I call the low-hanging fruit of a lot of organizations. A lot of organizations know that if they really want to get a riled-up movement, if they really want to get impassioned supporters, anti-Semitism is a great draw, sadly, but truthfully. You want to, you want to pack, a, you want to pack a, 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 a convention hall with people who are going to yell and shout? Be anti-Semitic, because you'll get people to come. You want to get people marching? Be anti-Semitic, you'll get people to come. And if they had a slogan, a number of revolutionary movements over the years could have used the slogan, come for the anti-Semitism, stay for the revolution. Sadly, sadly, anti-Semitism is a magnet for a lot of radical organizations. So not only does anti-Semitism act as an alarm, as a litmus test to tell you, oh, this group is not a good group. Eventually, this group, no matter what I think of them now, is going to get violent, is going to get dangerous. It's also the magnet that a lot of these groups use, even when you already know they're dangerous, to get supporters. And again, this is true of the far right, and this is true of the far left, and it's true of any movement that is going down the wrong path. Now, communism is a great, Soviet communism, communism is a great example of all of this when we talk about the role of Jews in all these things and the role of anti-Semitism. Now, most people, educated people and educated Jews as well, will tell you, well, the communist movement had a lot of Jews who were involved in it, and that include the Bolsheviks, who were, of course, the most violent part of what became the communist movement in, in, in Soviet Russia. And they'll say it was fine for a while. Yes, they had to leave traditional Judaism, but it wasn't really anti-Semitic. And, it, and eventually, Stalin, when he came to power, he started to purge the Jews. And of course, what happened to Leon Trotsky, who had been the most prominent Jewish communist, is, is that's when everything started to go downhill. Now, this is, the, this is what I just said is the conventional wisdom about the history of Jews and communism in Soviet Russia. But it's incomplete. It's incomplete, and in many ways, it's incorrect. Because Soviet communism... Russian communism was anti-Semitic really from the way beginning, or at least from this point. The day 
that the Tsar and his family were murdered. Now, for those of you who know your history, the Tsar and his family were captured and were kept as, as prisoners for quite a while before the Bolsheviks finally decided to assassinate them. And whom did they choose to be the trigger man to kill not only the Tsar, but most of his family? Well, his name was Yaakov Yurovsky. And yes, he was a Jew. And for those of you who know the, the story of Yaakov Yurovsky, who was a very dedicated Bolshevik, he was deliberately chosen by the Bolshevik leaders, the non-Jewish Bolshevik leaders, to be the trigger man in the murder. And why is that? Because the Bolsheviks knew that if a Jew killed the Tsar and things went south for them, they lose the revolution, the white Russians take over, whatever you want to call it, then they could palm it off on the Jews. They could say it was a Jewish thing. And if they didn't, if they did end up triumphing and taking over the Soviet Union, they could tell the Jews, you're too far into this now anyway. A Jew killed the whole Tsar's family and the Tsar himself. You better join with us because you're going to get blamed for it anyway. They deliberately chose Yurovsky to do this. Now, here's a little something that you may not know. Yaakov Yurovsky's brother came to the United States to live as a loyal and patriotic American. And in my early 20s, I met Yaakov Yurovsky's nephew, a man named Morris Yurovsky, who was a painter, very, very kind man. He was living in Richmond at the time, where my parents were living at the time, Richmond, Virginia. And he was becoming something of a Balchuva. He wasn't becoming a very which is, for those of you listening who are not Jewish, that's the, the term we use. Balchuv is a term we use for someone who becomes more religious as a Jew. Maybe they were born not religious, maybe they turned away at some point and they become a little bit more religious. He was becoming something of a Balchuva when I met him, which didn't mean he was becoming super orthodox or anything else like that, but he was attending regular synagogue services and he was keeping kosher and doing things like that or trying to. And he told us the story of how he grew up in central Pennsylvania in the 40s and 50s <laughs> in terror his whole life, because for those of you who know about that region of the country, there are a lot of white Russians, Russians, you know, who, who supported the Tsar, or at least were not communists, who live in central Pennsylvania. And he, he always wondered why his dad never changed their last name, because he knew that white Russians and Russians who supported the Tsar, people who were very well educated, knew about the Yurovsky connection to the killing of the Tsar and his family. He was always worried that someone would come and get him and take revenge out on his family. That never happened, thankfully. But because his father had nothing to do with that, and of course Morris, who was his nephew, had nothing to do with Yaakov Yurovsky's killing of the Tsar and his family. But my point in telling the story is to make sure that folks understand that Trotsky and what happened to Leon Trotsky, as you know, he was murdered by Stalinist agents in Mexico City after he was purged for being a Jew and also for being someone who wasn't Stalin. I mean, if Stalin wanted to consolidate his power and Trotsky would have been purged whether he, were, he was a Jew or not. The fact that he was a Jew was the icing on the cake because Stalin was indeed more anti-Semitic or more outwardly, outwardly anti-Semitic than his predecessors, than Lenin and other people in the Soviet Union. Nevertheless, Trotsky's story is not the end of the discussion or even the beginning of the discussion when it comes to Jews and the communist story in, in the Soviet Union. It started on that day when they crossed the Rubicon, where they went past the point of no return and murdered the Tsar and his family and made sure that a Jew would be the one to do it. My point is revolutionary movements use anti-Semitic Semitism and they attempt to use Jews to further their ends. And very often these revolutionary movements are not just, they are dangerous. And we Jews need to be very vigilant here. And there's nothing wrong with protesting against police brutality. There's nothing wrong with any of those things. 
But any Jewish group or any Jewish person who marches with the official Black Lives Matter insignias or with the official Black Lives Matter organization is making a terrible mistake, one that history has taught us is not the way to go. I'm Jake Novak. This has been Novak Now on the Nachum Siegel Network. Catch me on Twitter at JakeJakeNY. I hope to speak to you again next week.